Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. You can have all the knowledge, all the education, all the experience that you need. But if you don't have a voice, it doesn't matter. Richard Newman. Richard specializes in showing leaders how to speak with greater impact and influence. It's all about your mindset. There are people who will, first thing in the morning, they wake up 6, 7 a.m. What do they do? They turn and they grab their phone and they look at how many likes have they got, how many comments have they got, how many people have said nice things about them. They're looking for external validation. If you have internal validation, which means that you focus on this is who I am, these are my values, then you can go into a situation thinking, I don't need validation from anybody else because I know who I am and I know what I care about. That's where you can start to find your voice. If you could give my audience a piece of advice, what would you say? I'm Erica Kohlberg and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. I'm always on the go, jumping from meeting to meeting and juggling multiple projects. And it's been hard to find a workout routine that I can actually stick to. I've tried gym memberships, classes, but nothing was flexible enough to fit into my lifestyle until I came across Copilot. True to its name, Copilot puts me in the driver's seat when it comes to fitness, but it's always by my side with flexible, expertly crafted workouts, courtesy of my awesome coach. With Copilot, you download the app and you get assigned an expert coach. Mine is amazing. We got on a kickoff call where we talked about everything that I wanted to achieve. The workouts are customized for you and you can work out at any time at the gym or home, wherever you are. Doing a gentle workout routine at night has helped me relax so much and it's now a vital part of my fitness routine. My coach never feels far away and makes adjustments to my plan whenever I need, so there's no need for me to miss sessions. Copilot is fitness made easy. If you want to kickstart your health, then visit erica.com copilot to get a 14-day free trial with your own personal trainer. Again, that's erica.com copilot. Erica is with a K. Copilot is C-O-P-I-L-O-T to kickstart your health plan with a free trial. I'll leave the link in the description so that you can sign up now. Were you always a good communicator? Actually, no. This has been a lifelong journey for me, so it's been a big challenge. So when I was about four and a half years old, I first realized there was something a little bit different about me. 
And uh, it's been four decades since that to really figure out what was happening. So I knew very early on, my parents always referred to me as shy to the point where I thought, is that my middle name? Like, where, why do I keep on hearing this about me? And then I realized in my early 20s that I was an introvert once I started to understand what that was. And it wasn't until I was 44 that I got diagnosed as being autistic. And what that means in my case, because there's a huge spectrum there, uh, what it means in my case is that I have a struggle with the on-ramp in communication where I'll see people in a conversation. And it's a bit like, if you imagine sitting outside a goldfish bowl and you look at the fish and you think, wow, they, they just, they swim and they breathe underwater and they just know how to do that. I, I can't do that. And so that's a little bit like what conversation was like for me uh, when I was younger. So I really had to figure it out. And so what happened is that when I was around 16 years old, I started to read books on communication, uh, on things like body language, tone of voice, stage presence, breathing, anything that I thought was going to help me and read about 200 books in the period of about five or six years on communication. Then when I was 18 years old, I forced myself out of my comfort zone. I went to live in a Tibetan monastery in the foothills of the Himalayas, where I was living with a group of monks who didn't speak a word of English. And so I had to communicate with them non-verbally. There was no choice about it just to connect with them. And over the course of six months of living with them, they learned how to speak English. And I learned how to speak Nepali, which was the easiest language that they knew that I could connect with. And I came back to the UK just fascinated by this understanding that body language and tone of voice is so much more than what a lot of people think it is. So people think when they hear body language, they think, it's about uh, scratching your nose or folding your arms. But there's something that we can do in terms of nonverbal connection with another human being that went so much deeper. And then I studied at a London acting school for three years where we were learning how to sit, how to stand, how to breathe, how to move in the way that would impact someone on stage and impact an audience. And then uh, I was sitting in my, uh, my hairdresser's chair in the hair salon uh, one day and I was talking to him about these things that I'd done like the teaching the monks and studying acting and he said wow if I give you a free haircut uh, could you teach my team how to communicate and I said no I, I have no idea how I would do that and he said well you'll figure it out free haircut come back and do it <laughs> and so I came back and I did it and we're just with four people in the back of the hair salon and they seemed to really like it and I enjoyed it too and so uh, they said come back and I kept on going back a few times. And then about two months later, someone called me up, which was this uh, engineer, head of an engineering company. And he said, I've just had my hair cut today. And my hairdresser said that you're an amazing communicator. Can you come and teach my team? We're doing a big exhibition. How much do you charge? And I thought, well, what I charge is a free haircut. So what am I supposed <laughs> to charge you? So I called my dad and I said, I think this thing's sort of taking off. How much do I charge? And he said, charge them as much as you think you can get away with, uh, which at the time was a week's worth of work as an out-of-work actor working in a restaurant was getting me 275 pounds. So I thought, let me see if I can charge that. And I charged the guy that and he said, wow, that's great. I would have paid you 10 times as much. And I thought, okay, mental note for the future. <laughs> and I went and I did it and I just felt euphoric afterwards. And I thought, oh, this is something I can now do. And then I, I started to build it up and word of mouth spread. And now I have a team of 20 people and we get about 2000 bookings per year to go and work with people all the way around the world, teaching them how to communicate. So when you had that very first lesson, you were teaching the hairdressers, what did you teach them? Well, uh, for them, actually, uh, I was teaching them real basics of how to connect with somebody because they realized that uh, with hairdressers, you know, people can go and get their hair cut anywhere. And uh, these young streetwise London teenagers didn't really have that sense of being able to connect with someone and give them reassurance. 
And so they would, you know, somebody would come in and say, hey, I want to have this latest celebrity haircut. And they'd look at the person saying, oh, yeah, that's, that's fine. It's completely fine. Yeah, I'll, I'll sort that out. You just come over here. They're not giving much eye contact. There was no personal contact. And there wasn't a sense of reassurance. So there was really sort of this, this movement that felt like I could maybe do it, maybe not. I'm not really sure. Sit in the chair. I'll get my scissors out. And so what I was teaching them is that sense of how do you give people that reassurance? So first of all, if you just take a look at the words inspirare, expirare from the Latin, that's where we get our words inspire and expire. So inspire related to breathe in and expire related to breathing out. But also it's related to the word inspiration. So if you think about it, if you look at someone who's feeling inspired, how do you know? Well, they go halfway through a sentence and then they breathe in, they slightly lift the sternum. And you think, oh, this person's inspired. They must have something really important to say. Equally, if you're in a job interview and you watch someone drop their sternum, they've expired from the conversation. So you'll see them sort of nodding towards you and then they go, and the sternum drops. And you think, oh. okay, I'm not going to get this job. I failed at this sales pitch. They're not interested. And so I was teaching these hairdressers that sense of, you want to stand in a sense where gravity's working with you not against you, not sort of standing off to one side, slightly lift the sternum to project that sense of confidence. And then I was working with them on gestures around confidence too. So uh, firstly, we talked about handshakes. And then I was sharing with them the difference between palms up and palms down. So if you do palms up gestures, this is very open, like, hi, nice to meet you. I'd love to know, you know what was you like today? What are you looking for? So showing a sense of I'm really caring about you and what do you need to do? And then uh, towards the end of that consultation with someone, they would do a palms down to say, that's absolutely fine. I, can, I know exactly what you need. I have total confidence that we can do this. So by switching from palms up to palms down, then the person would feel like you've heard me and you're going to do it with confidence. If you do it the other way around, it doesn't work. So if I say to you, so, so what do you want today? Do you know what you need? And you'd feel, well, you're shutting me down straight away. And if I then say, yeah, I'm sure we can do that. That's fine. Come and sit in my it chair. It seems like you're not so certain. Exactly. Yeah. So it's that sense of opening people up and then giving them that confidence from the palms down at the end. That's so interesting. By the way, if you guys are listening on audio, I highly recommend you watch this episode on my YouTube channel just so that you can see what exactly we're doing. It's very important. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. So then if I'm just having a conversation with you and I'm not really trying to tell you that I'm about to do your hair, is up palm up better or palm down? So palms up is good for a sense of being open, being welcoming, such as you could say, uh, thanks everybody for coming to the meeting, or it's great to meet you today. How are you today? What, what's going on for you? So it's palms up as if to say, let's share back and forth. Or it's really good in an interview or a team meeting or a sales pitch if you want to get the other person to open up. And in fact, I've been teaching people to do this for virtual meetings, because most of the time people have set up their virtual meetings where they've cut themselves off just below the shoulder. So they're gesturing out of shot and thinking, why does it feel like a tumbleweed moment every time I ask someone a question? The reason being, they can't see your arm. That's saying, hey, everybody, interact with me. What do you think about this? So they think it's a rhetorical question. So instead, you want to have that palms up to open the conversation up. Then when you want to say something, you can just do a palms down saying, I think I've understood this so far. Is that what you mean? Just tell me more. So you can go back and forth from open statements to closed and strong, confident statements. Uh, equally, if, you, if you're doing this as sort of a big uh, sales pitch, you might want to be going to a palms down to say, I've really looked at this. I've looked at what you need, and I'm fully confident that we have the best possible product for you. So it's a statement mm. that's closed, strong, and confident, palms down. So if I say it like, 
I really looked at what you need and I'm confident I have the exactly. best solution for you. You're not going to hire me. No, it, it, it looks more like a shrug and people will think, I think I'm going to go in a different direction. And then what about leg placement? So uh, legs is an area that we talk about as being fatal distraction. Uh, the reason being, without realizing it, a lot of people move their legs without knowing about it. Uh, and so when people are standing, they might uh, pace back and forth if they're in a large room, or they might just lean. Often what people do is they lean from one hip to the next. They'll go from one side across to the other side. They might uh, put up the toe of their shoe, that sort of thing. But uh, in a key moment of a conversation, if it's one-to-one, -one, when someone's sitting down, if they're getting to a point where they're feeling anxious about something, then they might start to... Uh, subconsciously, without realizing it, start to move their legs because they are saying in their mind, I'm uncomfortable. And the body responds and says, you're uncomfortable? Should I just, hang on, I'm just going to shift around for a moment. Does that make you feel more comfortable? Is that okay? And what you've done is you've shifted when you're in the key part of the conversation, such as talking about price or a key area of a contract. And then suddenly the person thinks, ah, oh, you seem a bit shifty, a bit uncomfortable. Maybe there's something wrong with what you've requested. Whereas if you come up to a key moment, in a conversation and you think, okay, this is the bit. If you just work with dynamic stillness, which is something that came from my uh, acting training background, and suddenly you deliver the line completely still, the person thinks, okay, you are fully committed here. You're fully confident. You're being congruent here. Maybe I should pay more attention to this. And when I'm coaching clients on this, I like to do, because I'm British and I'm a boy, I like to give them the line, the name's Bond, James Bond. Because you can't do it when you're moving. So just, just try it for a second. Say the line, but move as you do it. The name's Bond, James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> right, so if you said that to the villain, you'd be like, so I've got a name too. Whereas if you deliver it, deliver it to me completely still, totally confident. <laughs> you have to try and do it without smiling. The name's Bond, James Bond. So pretty good, you're 80% there, but you slightly bobbed your head. So see if you can do it totally still. The name's Bond, James Bond. That's it. That's like 95% there. There's still a slight movement. The There's just a little bit of movement in the head. So you'll notice if you go back and watch any Bond film, pretty much every single time he delivers that line, he says it 100% still. And I'm sure there's loads of other examples that we could take of um, you know, different people in different roles. But that's just a classic one that people know worldwide. And so if I'm trying to get a CEO to deliver a message that needs to have total confidence behind it, so people are reassured by something, you can't get a, you know, a CEO going on stage saying, hey, everybody, you know, I think things are looking good at the moment we've got a, you know a great year that's coming up and it because suddenly the, the team will be thinking really this person doesn't seem to know what they're doing whereas if you get them to deliver it as if they're saying the name's bond james bond they say i'm really confident in what's going to happen this year i really believe in this team they'll think okay you've got, you've got it I, I can see you even like nodding yeah, vigorously as well, i'm I was saying looking that. at your hands going down to it i'm like i know what you're up to <laughs> <laughs> exactly you know what's coming yeah and is the tone of voice the way you deliver it also that also matters yeah the tone of voice is critical too this is a sense of if you imagine you know words on a page that someone's going to sing and then they add the tune into that that the tune that they add if you think about the most powerful music it that tune makes you feel something and if they change the tune they change the tempo of the music it makes you feel something else actually there's a sort of a couple of sort of classic songs that were going to be slow songs they turn into fast songs it makes you feel something different even though it's the same words so the same is true of your tone of voice. And again, we've tried this with uh, business leaders or people going in to do an important pitch where we say to them, and this is the key question for communication, we always say, how do you want people to feel by the time they leave this room? And they'll tell us a feeling and we'll say, okay, deliver it to us. 
and we'll let them know sometimes, look, your tone of voice at the moment is making me feel nervous. Your tone of voice is making me feel questioning or maybe it's making me feel bored in worse situations. So what do we need to do to make them feel excited? And so I'll take sometimes a famous speech from history or I'll take uh, children's storybooks and say, okay, this is a story that needs to be enthusiastic. So I need to read it like you're reading it to five-year-old children. And they'll read it and then I'll say, now do the sales pitch. And they'll say, what do you mean? I say, do it exactly like you did the children's storybook. And suddenly it comes to life because they're playing with more of the emotion in the words, which is exactly what we used to do as kids. And people have this uh, misunderstanding when they get into business where they think, okay, I have to have this professional way of speaking where I'm essentially on a monotone to sound like what I'm saying is important. But if you do that, nothing's important because it all sounds the same. And if you take a look at newsreaders, they're amazing at doing this, where they let you know how to feel about a story before you even know the facts of the story. And they'll do that through their tempo and through uh, the pitch of their voice as well, where they'll say, in other news this evening, I need to talk to you about Mary. And you think, God, what happened to Mary? This is awful. <laughs> Poor but, then, Mary. but then they might say, okay, we're going to another story. And in other news, I need to tell you what happened about Julie. And you think, well, Julie's having a great day. <laughs> and so they, they tell you immediately in the tone of voice how you're supposed to feel. Uh, movies do the same thing with soundtracks. They'll start to play uh, music that makes you feel sad or music that makes you feel super excited before a certain character walks on screen. So you instantly connect that emotion with that person. And so if you can do that in business, if you think, how do I want people to feel about my brand? How do I want them to feel about me? Then you put that into your tone of voice or more importantly, how do I want them to feel about this word, this message? If you think about it in advance, then you can put notes in your script, in your, in your, uh, book that you've got with you with whatever you're holding with your material. So you know, okay, this is where I need to pause. This is where I need to go up in pitch, down in pitch, slow down. And you get to that point where you create an emotional flight path of the information. You're much more likely to take people with you on that journey. That's so interesting. I feel like though me, if I were doing that and just thinking about, okay, my hands have to be down or up and I have to have this tone and be this excited. I would just be overthinking everything. So how do you get to a place where that just comes naturally to you? So I, I put this down to, I often talk to people about tennis because tennis was the only sport that I was ever any good at. And so I remember when I was first learning how to play tennis, I would learn how to do a forehand and I'd hit 4,000 forehands uh, until I was sort of at the point where I think, okay, I can do this. So I'd learn in the tennis lesson. I'd then go into the, uh, the car park where I was waiting for my parents to collect me after the lesson. And they had a line across the wall that was representing the height of a tennis net on the back of the building. And so I'd hit as many forehands as I could to the point where I think, okay, I don't have to think about this forehand anymore. I can learn a backhand. Then you learn the backhand. Then you learn forehand. Then you learn serve. Then you learn, learn volley. And so by putting them together in practice, then when you get into a real game, you can do it without thinking. The same thing goes with anything in communication. So if people want to start doing like a palms down, the best thing to do is you can practice it in day-to-day -day life. Like, uh, you know, for example, somebody comes up to you in a bar and says, would you like another drink? And they give you like a little palms up. Would you like another drink? How about a double? Would you like a double? Then you can just do a palms down saying, no, thanks. I'm fine. And in low stakes situations, you've then practiced, which means when you get into a serious negotiation and somebody says to you, go on, give us, give us an extra 500 pounds off. Can you do that? You, you know, give it a discount for $2,000. Why, why didn't you do that? And you can say to them, no, thanks. This is the final price. You've done it in high stakes situations. So it's worthwhile practicing that for a situation where you really need it. So of all the communication techniques that you teach, 
What do you think is the one that people should absolutely start by practicing with? So back in 2016, I put together this uh, research project working with UCL, University College of London, and Professor Adrian Furnham, who's the head of psychology there. And I wanted to find out exactly this. What are the most important things that people can do that everybody can do worldwide? And so we, we spent 18 months designing this study which involved over 2,000 people from all over the world, across Europe, uh, Asia, and the Americas, people aged from 18 to 65, men and women involved in the study, people from different backgrounds, from different jobs, industry. And uh, we would show them a video of someone speaking to them. And at the end of that video, they had to say, how convincing is this person? How good a leader is this person? Would you vote for them in an election? And they gave us their votes. What they didn't realize is that we created lots of variations on that video. So in the video, we had uh, filmed some of them with a man speaking, some of them with a woman, some of them with lighter skin, darker skin, and also the actors on the videos went through an aging process so we could make them look 30 years older to see if that had an impact. And what we found is that it didn't make any difference if the person in the video was a man or a woman, which was a huge surprise didn't make any difference what their skin color was. It didn't make a difference if we showed the video in Mumbai versus showing it to someone in Los Angeles. And it didn't make a difference what age the person perceived to be on camera. Instead, what did make a difference is that we were able to pinpoint certain changes in their body language that if we went from the most common habits that people have day to day to the most effective, you could get an increase of 59% in the number of people who would be willing to vote for you in an election. We also got an increase of 42% more people being convinced by your message. Even though you're saying the same words and you're wearing the same clothes, you are the same person. You change a couple of key pieces and you get that 42% increase in how many people you can convince to hire you, to buy your products, and so on. And these are the sort of things that we then got on to teach people where we've worked on some big contracts. And since we're in a building in London, there was one uh, team that we worked with where they were bidding for a piece of work that I think from memory was worth $800 million. And they were in third place. And we went into work with them like two days before the final pitch. And there was a bunch of things we worked on, including the body language and delivery. And they'd been working up towards this for over a year. And we managed to, to coach their team to go from third place to first place in the space of just a couple of days. So they won this huge, huge deal. And it works for people if they are going to a job interview or sort of a smaller pitch day to day. But the, the couple of things that people really need to work on is their posture and their gestures. So, so <laughs> on posture, one of the key things that I like to coach people on is to avoid being a pushover. And this is something that we see more regularly with people who are younger, but not necessarily. And so what we find is that when people are standing, quite often what they do is that they put their weight on one side or on the other, or they may sway backwards and forwards. Or if they're sitting down and they're on a chair with an armrest, they might put one arm on an armrest. And suddenly what happens is that gravity is pulling me off center. And if I was standing in that sort of position and you pushed me, I'd go over. So I physically look like a pushover. So instead, what you need to do is if you go to a position where gravity is working effectively and efficiently on your body, where you've got your sternum raised, which we've talked about, and then your, your gra gravity is going straight down on your torso, then suddenly you're in a position where you have gravitas because gravity is working effectively on your body. And that's, you know, if people are doing this for a virtual meeting, it's rather than sort of slumping back in the chair or leaning forwards towards the webcam, which a lot of people tend to do, if you just go into a position there, people know 
subconsciously, if they came to push you, that you would stand your ground. And so we have these phrases of pushover, standing your ground. These come from these positions. And it's also what children do when they're one year old, roughly around one year old, uh, is that kids learn how to stand. So they stand up with, you know, one uh, leaning onto one leg rather than the other, and they fall over. And they stand up just on one leg, they fall over. But eventually they work out, if I am equally balanced between left foot, right foot, toes and heels, and I'm centered, I can stand. And suddenly there I am as a huge moment in our lives. And later in our lives, we sort of forget that moment of connection with gravity. And we end up sort of folding our legs across, leaning off to one side, and wonder why we're being treated like a pushover. Well, you're physically representing it. Then what we also found is that it is key to gesture. So there's some really good research done by uh, Susan Golden Meadow from the University of Chicago, where she found that the more you gesture, the more you are stimulating uh, cognitive processes in the mind. So you can speed up your ability to give intelligent answers. And there were some good studies done on this on TED Talks as well that showed that we are more engaged by people who do more gestures. So it's not just good for you, it's also good for the other person. But what matters is where you do the gesture. So some people, when they hear about doing gestures, they, they do them quite low down because they think, okay, I want a gesture, but I feel self-conscious, so I'm going to do a little gesture <laughs> just down here. And it sort of feels like I don't really mean it and I don't really believe it, so it's too, too low. Other people get overexcited and they gesture above their shoulder and suddenly it seems like I'm being overly dramatic. Yeah. So the gesture needs to be between waist height and shoulder height. And the key piece that makes so much difference is going slightly away from the body. So if you can notice on me here, my elbow is being slightly away from my torso. The reason being, this gives you that sense of, if people remember dirty dancing, your dance space, my dance space. You've got to have your dance space out here. The more space you're taking up there, the more physical presence you actually have. And so if you go in towards your, your body, you have what we call T-Rex arms, where suddenly you sort of, you, you do gestures, but you look fairly ineffectual in this position. We know that T-Rex arms are not very effective. Yeah. So you go slightly out from the body, either palms up or palms down or descriptive gestures of which there are thousands that we could talk about. And suddenly by doing that, you look much more engaging. People are more drawn into what you're saying. You can be more congruent with your message as well. So you put those pieces together. And you can go from a position where we found the worst thing you can do is to be standing off center, doing no gestures. Then you seem to be ineffectual and a pushover. Whereas if you're standing or sitting centered with a slightly lifted sternum and doing a range of gestures that match your message, open statements and closed statements, then suddenly you're in that position where one of the other pieces we measured was that there was a 44% increase in the number of people who believe you're a good leader because you're simply doing those things, saying the same words and wearing the same clothes. A few years ago, I set this goal. I said, I want to make a million dollars in my business this year. So then I did the math. If I want to make a million dollars, that means every working hour, I need to be making $480. So anything that would bring me more than $480, I'm in. Anything that's less, I need to figure out a way to outsource or make it more efficient. That year, I achieved my goal, and the key was that I was obsessed with efficiency. If there is something that I'm doing in my business that takes, let's say, three hours, and there's a tool or system or software that allows me to shave off time, I'm in. If this is you, you should know these three numbers, 36,000. 25, one. 36,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. 
That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need all in one place. There's tremendous power in having all this information in one place. And my buzzword, it's efficient. So if you're obsessed with efficiency like I am, then right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash Erica. That's netsuite.com slash Erica to get your own KPI checklist. Erica is always with a K. That's netsuite.com slash Erica. So this is quite selfish of me, but I was actually thinking a few weeks ago that if I'm going to have the impact that I want to have, Mm -hmm. I need to learn how to become better at public speaking, better at delivering my message. So I was going to hire a coach. Mm. But now that I have you here, maybe we could go through like a coaching session. (laughs) Sure, absolutely. So uh, the way that I like to approach this uh, working with someone is, for me, it's a journey of helping them find their voice. And it's very much at my heart to, to, to do that because uh, it was something that was such a journey for me to really find my voice, to get to a place where anybody would listen to me and take action on what I had to say. It was so surprising to get there. But the journey to go through is really three stages, which is firstly mindset, then the words, then the delivery. Because sometimes if you work on delivery style first, then it can feel a bit like it, you're feeling a moment ago of, whoa, this feels a bit unnatural because it's almost not stuck to something else. And so the first stage to go through. If you want to have a really powerful voice uh, on stage, doing speeches, doing pitches, or or doing things online, is to start from the mindset and from the point of your values. So if you think for a moment about your key values, the, the principles that you use to guide your life, which if people are struggling to figure out what they are, one simple way for people to start to measure it is if I said to you, okay, I'm going to give you a billion pounds, but you do have to cross a line. Now, what would be a line that you would never cross where you think there's no way I would ever do that? Whereas some people might say, as an example, if I said to you, I'll I'll give you a billion pounds, but you have to betray a member of your family. Or I would give you a billion pounds, but you're going to have to spend some time in prison. Or I'll give you a billion pounds, but you'll never be healthy again. Is there one of those pieces where you think I would, there's no way that I would ever do that because that's a line that that would be crossed, which is important to me. That's how you can start to figure out your values. Does anything come to mind for you where you think this is a core value? a principle that I use to guide my life. I don't like any of those that you mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> so what's interesting about it is like I saw you, uh, you made a facial expression around uh, you can never be healthy again. Now, the key behind that would be to investigate, well, is it health that is a value of yours? Or is it maybe being useful to other people that is a value of yours? There'll be something around it where you think it's important to me to be vibrant and healthy because I'm serving millions of people around the world and helping them have a better life. Or is it I want to be healthy so I'm a good member of my family? Or is it just I want to be healthy because I like feeling alive? Like What is it for you? That's funny that you picked up on that. Well, I was just sick for four weeks. So I really saw the impact that being so sick had. Like I couldn't help people. I couldn't do work. It was very frustrating. Yes. So so here's what's interesting then as we start to figure out your values is that uh, you said I was sick for four weeks and what really mattered is that I couldn't serve and help other people. Some people would say I was sick, which meant that I couldn't go out and see my friends. 
or I couldn't go to the movies and I couldn't go out to parties that I wanted to go to. But that wasn't the focus for you. It's just the sense of I want to get up and serve people and now I'm struggling to do so. So service will be maybe one of your values. This is a piece that I like to work on with people because if you get to a place of understanding your core values, then you can speak from that place whenever you're doing a speech, if you're doing a pitch, doing an interview. This gives you internal validation. Now, if you think about the world of social media, which you're doing so, so well in, there are people who will, first thing in the morning, they wake up 6, 7 a.m., what do they do? They turn and they grab their phone and they look at how many likes have they got, how many comments have they got, how many people have said nice things about them. They're looking for external validation and it puts them in a downward spiral during the course of the day. And then if they go to a job interview, then they're looking for external validation from the other person. Do you like me? Do you trust me? Do you, do you want to hire me? And so we can be in that state all the time that takes us away from ourselves. We can end up actually getting a job or, or getting a good uh, pitch with a client who we don't actually really want to work with because we've worked outside of our values. So this is why this is so important. If you have internal validation, which means that you focus on this is who I am, these are my values, then you can go into a situation thinking, I don't need validation from anybody else because I know who I am and I now know what I am willing to do and I know what I care about. That's where you can start to find your voice. So uh, for me, as an example, my first key value is to be a good father. I don't know why, but since the age of about 10, I thought that's what I want to be. And there's so many parts of my life that uh, are impacted by that. And before I go on stage, I'm thinking I I'm here to be a good father, which means there's certain choices I'm going to make about what I'll say, uh, who I will be on that stage for that audience, wanting to be a role model for my kids, even if they're not in the room, just that, and that sense of that's who I am. I also have uh, a value of... I like to inspire and empower my clients. And so that's always going through my mind, which means that when I go on stage with people, I'm never there thinking I'm here to look good. It's not about me. It's actually about the audience. So my focus is entirely on what can I do to inspire and empower Bob, who's on row four over there. And so it, it gives me that charge. That value is coming from me. And I don't worry if Bob is sort of sitting there with his arms folded, thinking, sort of looking off to one side. I'm not thinking, oh, no, I'm, I'm doing a bad job. I'm just thinking, I wonder what situation Bob is in right now. You know, what, how, what can I do to help him to get from that state to where he needs to be by the end of this session? So it gives you that internal validation. So that's step one. I'd encourage anybody to take 15 minutes and write down a page of these are my core values. This is why I care about them. This is how it's helped guide me in my life so far. And that gives you the internal validation where your voice needs to come from. Once you've done that, you're then in a position to start writing a speech or writing a pitch because you think it's going to be represented by these values. The key thing for me before an important uh, pitch or speech is that if I'm in the way room or if I'm backstage, then my focus goes inwards where I'm focusing on my values and I'm working on my breathing. And once I've got to that place of being centered within me, the moment that someone says, uh, Mr. Newman, we're ready for you, I can hear them introducing me on stage. My focus immediately goes outwards. I'm not inside myself anymore. When I'm in the room, my focus is there. Just like with a surfer, you've got to have your focus on the waves. You've got to have your focus on the ocean. And you don't blame the ocean and go, well, that bit of ocean doesn't look excited. So uh, I guess I'm doing something wrong. You just think, okay, what can I do to surf this particular ocean? So you have the inward focus before you go out, and then you have the outward focus uh, when you're there. One other piece just to drop in about uh, mindset is breathing. It, and this is something I learned as an actor, which is fabulous. We, we all asked our, our acting teacher, 
how do you cry on cue? Like, how do you laugh on cue when you're doing it, you know, 4,000 performances? How do you just, you know, make that happen? In fact, there was a lady who was studying at the acting school with me the same time I was there, where she had to be laughing hysterically at the end of a scene. And then they do scene change. 10 seconds later, she's supposed to be crying because someone's just died. And she said, I don't know how to do this. And uh, the, the coaching we were given was to do it on the breath. So laughing, breathing, and crying breathing is very similar, but it's just reversed. So if you want to do um, crying breathing, if I get this right, you go uh, four breaths in and then one breath out. So you go, <sighs> and it comes out. Whereas laughter breathing is four breaths out. <laughs> <laughs> so you can also do the same thing backstage is to change your breathing rhythm to give you a, a centered mindset. The one I've always done because I was coached on doing this as an actor is sort of square breathing or box breathing, which is where you breathe for a rhythm of five, 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 two. So you breathe in for the count of five, you hold it for five. So you're processing the oxygen. You breathe out for five to slow down your heart rate and count for two, and then you go in again. So you're going sort of a, in this sort of box shape, if you like, five, 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 two. And if you do it for a period of around about 90 seconds, then you switch over from the sympathetic nervous system, which is a state of um, fight and flight, across to the parasympathetic nervous system, which is rest and digest. And so if you imagine sort of doing that in a waiting room or before you go on stage somewhere, 90 seconds, you're backstage, you focus on your, your values and you're doing that breathing and you get to a state where you are ready for anything. You just go up and you think, I'm completely um, ready for this piece. So once you've then worked on your mindset, the second piece you've got to get into is storytelling and something that you already do exceptionally well online because telling a story in the space of 30 seconds or doing it in 60 seconds is a true art form. Uh, when you then put that into doing a sort of a longer speech, uh, it's amazing. I'm doing actually a talk next week uh, or maybe the week after where I'm speaking for two hours and the client said to me on the phone today, so I imagine there's going to be like a break halfway through because people can't really pay attention for two hours. Uh, to which I, I say, said to her and say to everybody, you know, it's completely fine for me to have them for two hours because, you know, if you think about it, when you go to a movie, you sit there completely still and <laughs> absolutely engaged for two or three hours. And so it is possible to do it. But what does a movie do? They tell you a story. And from right from the beginning, you are hooked, you're engaged, you're fascinated to find out what's going to happen next. And so you can do the same thing when you're crafting a pitch or crafting a speech. And the way to do it is to do the opposite of what most people do. So most people, if they're in a work meeting or, or preparing to do the update at the, the team meeting or conference, they're just putting together slides with data and graphs and charts and bullet points. And it's all about engaging the logical mind. And people end up, you know, after about 45 minutes of that, they think I need two cups of coffee before I listen to the next presentation because this is too much. So instead, what you need to do is if you look at stories, they always engage the survival mind, then the emotional mind, and then the logical mind, which are the three parts of the mind that you really, really need to engage in order to get somebody fascinated with something, uh, which is something, again, that you're doing really well in sort of 30 seconds or 60 seconds online, where initially there's a problem. Someone's having a challenge where... They have had their suitcase torn apart in the airport by the airline. And you think, wow, what's going to happen for this person? And then the, uh, the person they're dealing with at customer service is so rude to them. And we think from a survival point of view, I want to step in and I want to protect <laughs> you. So suddenly I'm thinking, wow, I'm really engaged. What's going to happen? And then suddenly 
uh, Erica's advice pops up, which is, what if there was a way to make sure that they would pay everything back? Because you're actually entitled to $3,000 and this person doesn't know. <laughs> you think, wow, this is amazing. My emotional mind is really lit up. And then the logical part steps in of what you actually need to do is this step, this step, this step. And so people are listening. And they do this in commercials all the time. They do this in uh, like hair care commercials, so they're famous for doing this, where at the beginning, they'll, they'll take a product. It's shampoo, for goodness sake. It's shampoo. But what they do at the beginning is to get you really concerned. They say, don't, don't you just hate having dull, lifeless hair, split ends? <laughs> what, what a nightmare that is to deal with. And you think, it is. I'm just crushed by this. And then they say, what if you could have salon beautiful hair with an everyday conditioner? You think, wow, can I have that? And then they say, here comes the science to engage the logical brain at the end. And they show you this hair follicle with hydroparamoxylene going through it. And you think, wow, I need to learn the science. I'm going to make some notes on this. This is amazing. And at the end, they say, well, you know, I think I'm worth it. Are you? And you think, I am worth it. I'm going to go and get the shampoo. <laughs> so they're doing 30-second storytelling. But you can take that out to like three hours where Avengers Endgame, which is maybe the top movie at the box office of all time at this point. And they, over three hours, they engage the survival mind, the emotional mind, then the logical mind. And what do they do? At the beginning of the movie, in the first few minutes, so no big spoilers here, they say half of the world is dead. And then they say, what if we could bring them all back to life? Survival mind, emotional mind. Then they go into the logical mind and say, hey, let's split up and go throughout time to make that happen. And off they go and they put it into action. And so you need to be doing the same thing with your message. If you prepare for anything, you want to think, how am I going to engage, first of all, the survival mind? What is the biggest challenge that these people really care about? Then you think, before you tell them how to fix it, how can I engage the emotional mind so that people are lit up, they're imagining a more positive future, they can think, wow, if I listen to you for the next 10 minutes, 20 minutes, two hours, I'm going to achieve that, I'm in. I'm going to make notes, I'm going to sit forward, I'm going to engage with you. And then you go into the logical mind. Now, the key bit when you get into the logic part is that's usually in a movie or in a story or in a speech, that's where you spend 75% of your time. And so you need to use a tool from storytelling to make it work, which is the rule of three. So uh, you've got all sorts of rules of three, like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, the Three Musketeers, lots of famous versions of three. And even when Aladdin rubs a lamp, a genie pops out, he doesn't say, hey, you've got 29 wishes, because you'd be there all night. You'd be thinking, <laughs> come on, get on with the movie. So he says three wishes. And the reason being, you then think, okay, I know what the journey now is. Uh, there's going to be three wishes between now and the next 90 minutes. And so even if you go for a business example, when Steve Jobs launched the iPhone, which does a gazillion things, he said, basically, it's three things. It's a phone, it gets you on the internet, and it plays music. And then he started to explain everything else and went through this incredible storytelling, but it's all based on initially he was going through the survival part of, don't you just hate your phone and how hard it is to use? What if you could have an amazing phone that's really smart and sexy and wonderful? Well, now you can. It does three things. Let me tell you how it works. And so when you engage those three things, then suddenly uh, you're giving people a compelling story and you can get towards the end of a successful speech. And then the final piece that you then add on is you think, okay, from my core values, based on the message I want to deliver, what delivery do I need to have? Because it could be the delivery you need to have on that day is different from what you normally do. And I'll give you an example on this. Uh, there was a, a huge... A retail company that came to me where their managers were feeling uh, really stressed and upset because they've been told that hundreds of members of staff were going to be made redundant. Or I think in, in the US you just say fired, laid off, right? laid off. And so they came to me saying, look, we are deeply concerned. We're going to have to do these meetings with people who we think of as our work family. 
and uh, we, we need your help, your guidance of how to do the communication to make sure that we're serving them and looking after everybody. And this is a company where I've been working with them for years, started my team. And they were used to me coming in as like the inspirational, motivational guy. We do fun activities. Let's get up, move around. Let's play some music and so on. And then we were going into this very different scenario. And I thought my natural sort of bouncy, fast talking attitude isn't going to work in that situation. I need to be the rock in the storm for them. And so I thought I need to change my delivery based on that. So I think, okay, I want to be a good father. I want to serve and empower my clients. I really care about integrity and honesty. Now I create my message. My message is going to guide them from where they are, a state of a challenge to a state of a better possible future. I'm going to guide them through it. My delivery style needs to be a sense of having more command and control. So I thought from the moment they walk in, there's going to be no music. I normally play music at my events. We'll have no music. It's a somber situation. I'm going to slow my delivery down and talk to them about the seriousness of this situation. And even though it's a stark contrast from what they'd seen from me in the past, they thought the fact that he's talking to us in this way is just settling our nerves, giving us a sense of reassurance, and we know he's taking it seriously. So each thing that he shares with us, we will take seriously and we'll take that attitude into our meetings. So you've got to think, what are my values? What story am I going to tell? And what delivery style do I need that's going to match that? And when you get all those things lined up, you have total congruency in your communication. And that's what makes people really charismatic, really engaging, because everything is going in one direction. Rather than thinking, okay, that's a nice speech somebody else probably wrote for you. Uh, they've got everything in alignment. And that's what really engages us. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between 6 to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28, so go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, 
for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura. And I'll also leave the link in the show notes. As you were telling me about the survival, the emotion, and the logic, those stages, it was crazy because I was thinking, okay, this must only apply to speeches or something. But I was thinking, even when you are at an interview, mm. the way to convince the company to hire you is to go through those stages and to talk about for survival, you should ask when the company says, hey, do you have any more questions for us? You should ask, like, what are your biggest pitfalls? Where are your biggest weaknesses? And then make them aware of that problem and then bring in how emotionally you could be the one to solve it because you've solved it at previous companies by doing X, Y, and Z. And then the logic. When I did it at the when I helped the previous company, I was able to increase their sales by 33% by doing this and this and this. Yeah. Like you can go through that phase for everything. This is a great way to approach uh, job interviews. So, so classic questions that people get in a job interview is, uh, tell me about where you worked previously. Any, any projects that you're particularly ch- are proud of? That's a place where you can say to them, well, there was a big challenge that we had two years ago where we knew that this part of the business was really suffering and we just weren't sure what was going to happen and we were dealing with competition and challenges in the economy. My boss came to me and said, I'm just not quite sure what to do. Can you take this project on? And so then they're, they're listening, thinking, what did you do? This is amazing. And then you, you say the emotional part, because most people jump into logic and say, so what I did was this, 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 and it's kind of dull. So instead you say, So what I thought to myself was, what if I could turn this department around? What if I could make us more efficient and make us money? And what if I could do that in the next three months? And then people are thinking, how did you do that? And then suddenly you say, let me tell you how it works. Let me tell you how I did it. So you're giving them the next piece of information that they need. You can also do this, um, as you were saying there, by asking them questions. And the key part of a story is that you have to always remember, you're never the hero, you're the mentor. So if you want to go in and really engage someone in a job interview, I love it when people show up at a job interview and they ask me questions. If they say, no, I think you've kind of covered everything. I think, well, do you really want this job? Did you think it through? I'm not sure. But if, they, if you go into a job interview and you say to the person, yeah, I'd really love to know, you know, any challenges or concerns that you have right now in the business, what, what are you missing at the moment? What was the reason where you needed to hire somebody? Well, they could say, look, things are thriving right now, but to be honest, we just need more people fast because if we don't, we're going to be missing out on projects. So things could be going well. Or they could say, look, we have had some concerns in this area, which is why we need to build this new department because if we haven't got that in place, it's going to cause this. And then you can say to them, and what would your dream outcome be? If I was to work with you, what would that look like six months from now, a year from now? If we're working together and really achieving so much, just tell me what that would look like for you. So they paint this out. So you then know exactly what they're looking like uh, into that future uh, place of things. So then you can say to them, Okay, let's talk through how you and I can get there. What are the logical steps that we could do if I come in, if I'm starting week one, week two? And what you're doing is you're placing yourself in their future. 
So uh, you're creating, going down the path of what uh, Muhammad Ali actually talked about this as being future history, where he said before each of his fights, he would imagine vividly in great detail exactly what was going to happen in which round with which punch he was going to knock someone out. And he would do it over and over again to get to the point where he thought that the future was already history. It had already happened. If you do that in a job interview, you've placed yourself in the person's future. They have imagined what it would be like working with you, how you could take steps with them in order to get to where they wanted to be. You leave the interview and there's no chance they're going to go, nah, forget it. I think we're okay as we are. They're more likely to think, I've seen Erica in my future. I've seen how she and I can be working together. I want to have that catch-up meeting a month from now when we realize that we're actually already making steps towards success. So yeah, it's a great path to go down in any kind of meeting or conversation. And one question you can really ask them, the job interviewer, to get them to visualize you in the position is to say, what would a successful first month on the job be for you? How could I prove to you that you've made the right decision hiring me? And so then they start to list the attributes and what they're looking for and how a successful first month would be. And then they're thinking, oh, my gosh, Erica could be great for me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there's, there's further things that you can do in conversations to, to get to that place of real rapport. Because at, at the end of the day, somebody could interview 10 candidates in a day sometimes, particularly if they're doing virtual meetings. And so you want to stand out. And by asking questions like that, it's really powerful. The other piece that I encourage people to do sometimes is to think about three levels of questions. Because sometimes an interview or a meeting or a pitch with someone can feel quite transactional. And so if it feels transactional, most likely you're staying on data questions, which is where, uh, imagine if I said to you, um, so, you know, have you been on holiday recently? Where did you go? How many people were with you? What was the weather like? What was the name of the hotel? It feels quite transactional to the point where you think, can you just stop interrogating me? I'm just asking you about data. Whereas if I go to the second level in a conversation, I say, oh, you went on a holiday recently. How are you feeling? Like, what was that like being there? Suddenly we're getting to an emotional level of a conversation. You think, wow, we really shared, we really connected. If I go one stage deeper than that and say, you know, what was most important to you about this holiday? What, what was the biggest thing that was important to you about choosing this place? Then suddenly I'm getting to understand your values. And so you can walk away from a conversation, which some people will have done in the past, where you think, I feel like I've been friends with this person for years. They just seem to know me. They get me. We're on the same wavelength. And it's because you've gone not just into data questions, but you've gone into emotional questions and then more into values questions. So you can deepen that relationship much more quickly if you need to. That's so good. And I've been doing a lot of interviews and I realized the difference between walking away being like, wow, that was an amazing candidate. I really am considering hiring them versus walking away being like, oh, definitely a no. We're just going to have to send them a rejection a week from now is the questions that they asked me at the end. Mm -hmm. And some of them will use the time when I say, hey, do you have any more questions for me? Some will say, well, do you, when can I expect to hear back from you? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, these, these logical surface level questions. Whereas the ones that I feel really excited about walking away from are the ones who have asked me these deeper level emotional questions. Yeah, it, because th those candidates who ask you those emotional questions, th there's a sense of, I really care about your passion for this. I want to understand why it matters to you and how I can matter to you uh, as well. And one extra tip I give people in an interview too, which matters so much, is just tell the person you genuinely want the job. 
because you know, I've interviewed people in the past where they walked away and I thought, I don't know if they want this or not, or if they're just interviewing around. Whereas if people have said to me, just so you know, I, like, I've really enjoyed this interview and I, I would love the opportunity to work with you. I think what you're doing is fascinating. It would just be such a, a great opportunity to be there if I can be of service to you. Then those are the people we think, this person needs to come and work for us because they've got a passion, they've got a drive to serve and to support what's already going on. So letting people know, don't, don't leave anything uh, to be sort of inferred from what you've said, just absolutely state what you mean in those situations. Yeah. One of the things I was thinking about as you were talking about visualization, yesterday as I was preparing, I heard you on another podcast talking about how the majority of Olympic athletes, they'll visualize the win. And my husband and I were doing a walk as we were listening to the podcast. And so like I visualized getting home and just like power walking my way home. And then I got all the way home, even though it was a very long walk. Great. Yeah, it's a really good trick, actually, for, for your mind to see something in the future that you want. And this will uh, fire off dopamine for you. So uh, dopamine is the drug of more, as it's called. And so, you know, back in the days where we were foraging for food, we would see an apple tree in the distance and suddenly you get a little hit of dopamine, like this is something that I want. And you get a little bit closer and the apple seems bigger, you get a little hit of dopamine. And so it's sending you there. Now, if you can't actually see the apple, which is sometimes the case, if you're going for a long walk or in the past when I've been uh, running uh, London marathons, uh, you can't see this finish line, but you can visualize it. And when you do that, your mind goes, oh, that's up ahead. Keep going. This is the right direction for you. So suddenly you feel like you get a bit of uh, energy behind it. And the key thing I would say for people around visualization, if they're going to do it, because sometimes people have done it in the past and they say, oh, it just doesn't work. I visualized that uh, when I met Jim, he was going to smile. He was going to shake my hand and everything was going to be great. And then I got there and he was grumpy. So visualization doesn't work. As I always say to people, back up. And remember that you can't control someone else with your visualization. What you can control is two things, how you act and how you react. That's it. And so when athletes are doing this for their races, they're not thinking about what someone in lane seven is going to be doing. They're thinking about their lane. They're in lane four and they're thinking, how am I going to act and how am I going to react in this situation no matter what happens? And so you can do that for a speech or an interview, just thinking no matter what happens, this is how I'll act, this is how I'll react. Because everything is going to go wrong eventually. But people will let you down. Technology will let you down. So all you can really rely on is this is how I will act. This is how I will react in accordance with my values and so you can rely on that coming true from the visualization. Uh, one other thing to say about visualization, because sometimes people say, I can't visualize, I can't picture things in 3D. So who are these people who are seeing like a 3D movie in their head? If you can have anxiety, you can visualize. So anxiety is imagining a negative version of the future. So all you've got to do is notice how you have anxiety. The next time you're feeling anxious about something, what are you doing? Are you seeing it? Are you feeling it? Are you saying negative things to yourself? Like, oh, this is never going to work out. She's never going to agree to this. So that's how you're creating the anxiety. It's negative belief about the future. Just flip it around, whatever you're doing, and do that in a positive voice. So it could be that you hear something positive being said to yourself, or you say something positive, or you imagine something visually positive. So you're just switching things around, and that's how you create it. So instead of practicing a negative version of the future, practice a positive version of the future. That's so interesting. I'm really good at anxiety, which means <laughs> right. maybe I can become good at visualization. Like my anxiety this morning, I wanted a really good full night of sleep because I can mm. function better. But of course, like I slept five hours and then I woke up because I was like, oh, I have these podcast interviews today. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to do terribly. Yeah, I don't know how to change that. 
<laughs> so, uh, so there's a key thing that you can do then at the start of the day. And this is something I learned because like I was traveling a lot. So I think you, you just arrived, right? So you've got jet lag, so sleep is disrupted. I spent uh, 10 years where I was taking about 40 to 50 flights per year, traveling across time zones. And I think I was probably jet lagged the entire time. I had two young kids at the time as well. So when I got home, I didn't get much sleep either. Uh, and so I had to work out how do I get myself into a good mindset, even if I think, okay, today I've got a thousand people in front of me and I've only had two hours sleep and there was a difficult phone call I had two minutes before. So how do you get yourself in that state? So key things to do is just before you go to sleep and just after you wake up, your mind is in a state where it's more receptive for you priming it for uh, positive thoughts or being centered. So the way that I do this, no matter where I am in the world, is that uh, I put by my bed uh, my workout clothes. So there's no option. I wake up at the time at which I need to be waking up. I go outside wearing workout clothes. So I'm getting accustomed to the light levels at that time of day. And uh, I'm doing breathing, first of all, to get my body going. And then I go through three minutes of gratitude, where I feel really grateful for everything in my life and anything that might be around me. Like I'm grateful for the air. I'm grateful for the, for the pavement that I'm walking on. I'm grateful for it not raining on me that morning. So I'm getting to that state of gratitude. I then think deeply about my values. So I'm thinking about what kind of person do I want to be for myself and towards others? And then I visualize the day. And so I'm coming from a place of, I already have great things in my life, gratitude. I'm coming from a place of values where I think this is my North compass. This is the kind of person I want to be. And from there, I visualize what's this day going to be like if it's the best day possible. And so I've sort of caught my mindset at the start of the day before it starts to go in a spiral of, ah, where's this all going to go? Because wherever I wake up anywhere around the world, I wake up, I'm a little bit bleary eyed. I see my workout clothes and go, ah, oh, I know what I'm doing for the next 30 minutes and off I go. So it's, it's key to catch yourself there. You can also do this just before you go to sleep. If you want to settle your mind, you can work on slow breathing, focus on your values and think about what am I grateful for, for this day? So your mind starts to see, even if you've had a difficult time, like you might've had a bad flight and like maybe uh, something was damaged in your baggage <laughs> in transit <laughs> and you, you get there and you think, oh, just everything's falling apart. Wait, what am I grateful for? I'm grateful that I'm here in one piece. I'm grateful that my plane landed, even when, you know, British airspace is having challenges today or whatever it is, then you can think, okay, these are good things already. So I'm winning because of these things. So you go to sleep on that and you wake up with that. And so it's, it's bookending your day. So I'm loving all of this. I'm like nodding along and saying, yes, yes, I can do this. Mm -hmm. But I know myself, I have such a fear of getting on stage. My stage fright has always been bad that it feels like even if I can learn everything and practice, the moment I get on stage, I panic and it all goes away mm -hmm. and I black out. Like mm -hmm. I actually, people will say like, oh, you did great on stage. And I'm like, great. Cause I don't know what I said. <laughs> like I actually black yeah. out. So there are ways through that. So, you know, I, I come at this with so much compassion because I now speak on stage for a living. That's the main thing that I do. But I came from a background of an absolute terror of speaking. So, you know, going back all the way to, to being in school, if in class someone said, uh, you know, who wants to read out to the class? I was just praying that they didn't uh, pick on me. And in fact, there was, I went to an all boys school and uh, about two or three miles down the road, there was an all girls school and they put our lunch breaks at a different time. So we could never see each other. And so when I was 16, 17 years old, uh, this piece went up on the bulletin board, uh, which was about a, a debating club that was going to be having a meeting at the girls' school. And they would they'd put you on a minibus and they would drive you over there. I thought, this is amazing. We're going to actually be able to mix with each other. 
And so I wrote my name down and then I, I went there, I kept my jacket on, kept my hood up and sat on the back row, just thinking it's just a privilege not to be around just men all the time. And uh, partway through this evening, where, where people were at the front sort of debating with each other, this teacher walked around behind me. He tapped me on the shoulder. He said, stand up. And he put a piece of paper in front of me because um, he wanted me to ask a question. And I have no idea to this day what was on that piece of paper. I couldn't see. As soon as he said that, I just like, it was like all the blood drained from my body. I started to sweat. I couldn't function. And you know how at that age where, you know, kids will tease you because they'll sort of look at you and go, ha ha, you can't do it. And they, they just turned and looked at me like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Uh, and so I, I then thought, okay, I'm never, ever going to, to do this. Uh, but then I, I realized it, this is so important for communication. I, like I've got to figure out communication skills. They're critical. And something I often say to people is that you can have all the knowledge, all the education, all the experience that you need. But if you don't have a voice, it doesn't matter because you can't express it to somebody else. They're never going to know how good your ideas are. They're never going to be able to take action on them. You've got to be able to find that voice. And so I, I started working on this to try and get beyond this terror. I used hypnosis. I used all sorts of different things. And the piece that I got to was when I, when I worked as an actor, uh, I suddenly realized, hang on, there's something that I'm doing here that is working. And what we did is we would rehearse at performance level energy. So what that meant was you wouldn't just go through the motions where you go, okay, so I'm going to say uh, to be or not to be, and then you walk over here and do that. Okay, great. I'll see you on the stage. You, you don't do that. You In the rehearsal, you're going through it, giving it all the emotion that you're going to give on the night with the audience. And what that gives you is this memory, this muscle memory of, well, I've done this before, so I can do it again. If you couple that then with the visualizations, so you do it in practice. So let's say you've got a speech, a 20 minute speech, or if people are preparing for a, or a TED talk, like 18 minutes, where you, you do it enough with the emotion that you'll give it on the day, at the speed that you'll do it at, on the day, then you add to that visualization of actually being there on the red dot in front of people. You get to the place where you trick your mind into thinking that you've already done it. Now, all you really need to do in the final couple of days before you go is over and over rehearse the first three minutes. That's it. I sometimes say to CEOs who are really busy preparing for something, they say, I can't do that. I say to them, okay, the first 30 seconds, you can rehearse the first 30 seconds, take 10, 10 minutes, rehearse the first 30 seconds 20 times. That's all you're going to do. And so if you rehearse those first three minutes, literally as you physically want to do it, you get to the point where, you know, your voice, you know what you're going to be saying and so on. And you've done it to the point where you can't get it wrong. So this is key. Amateurs practice until they get it right. Professionals practice until they cannot get it wrong. And so you go out and within the first three minutes, you'll have a connection with the audience. And what I'm aiming for, depending on the audience that I'm with, is maybe a mood shift in them going, Ah, like it could be thoughtful or, or I'm looking for some kind of laugh early on. And as soon as you get that, you've got that connection with you. You think, oh, this is okay. They've accepted me because the fear that we've actually got is when you stand up in front of 10 people or a hundred or a thousand people, you're separating yourself from the tribe and you're saying, please accept me as the leader of the tribe right now. And they might say no, throw things at you and, and, and chase you and kill you. It's like this, this, this fear that we have. And so we think, okay, now that I'm separate from you, I want to feel connected with you. And so if you can stand strong, lift that uh, sternum up, as we've talked about before, plant your feet and speak to people with total confidence for three minutes. That's all it takes them to go uh, into an, an emotional connection with you, to accept you, to, uh, to believe in you, to give you a chance where you think, okay, they're with me now. I've got some kind of connection. Now, your job next is to ride the ocean. 
because you've got to figure out what emotional reaction did I get from them? Because then you're connected. So I, I, I do similar talks in so many different countries, different people. And I know what I want to say to start. What I like to do is to listen to a couple of talks before me so I know the mood of things. So I'm sort of sensing where is the ocean at today? What is this going to be a still ocean or a bubbly ocean? And if I haven't had that chance, sometimes they're on lunch break when I arrive and I get in there. In the first three minutes, I sense the emotion of the room. So I can go in and just start to get a vibe from them. And then I think that now I know how I need to ride the ocean next. I know what my content is. I feel connected with them, but I need to go to where they are. And what I mean by that is there's, there's one team, brilliant team for a big, well-known uh, travel company where their sales team are off the charts, where I was booked to do a motivational talk. I was going to be with them for three hours. So it was about nine. 900 people. And I thought, okay, I'll come in with high energy. And so I launched into it with high energy for about the first couple of minutes. And I realized their energy was like three times higher than mine. <laughs> I thought, oh, I need to match you. Otherwise I'm going to get like waves crashing down on my head. So I need to get up on this surfboard and I really need to ride a big wave. And so I got my energy higher and higher and higher to match theirs. Uh, but I was only able to sense that in that first three minutes because I hadn't seen them before. So it's about, first of all, uh, when you're backstage, just thinking, okay, all i got to do is these first three minutes. And even if you're sort of starting to panic, you get your breathing to the right place. You get out there and you think, I know what I'm saying for these first three minutes. And you've then connected with them. And ideally to follow this piece, if you're using any kind of visual aids, I always say to people, whatever happens, don't put words on the screen. Just put an image there. Because when an image comes up, you can tell a story about an image. A great example of this, I've seen her... Uh, live in person doing this is Jamie Kern Lima. Do you know who this is? She's like the head of uh, It Cosmetics. She was the CEO, first ever billion uh, billionaire. I think the youngest possibly, the youngest billionaire um, woman to uh, sell a company to L'Oreal. She became the first CEO of a brand at L'Oreal. And uh, I saw her doing a speech where she was in, I think it was San Diego. And I was sort of two rows back from the front. And she just put an image up of a squirrel on the screen. And she told this amazing, hilarious story about this squirrel and what it meant to her, what it meant to her friend, how her friend had sent her this image of this squirrel, which was so important to her just before an important sales pitch. And there was just a picture of a squirrel up there, but she, she was reminded of the story. So she's like, oh, squirrel story. And so she tells the squirrel story. So, you know, she did her introduction. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is where I'm going to take you in this. We connected with her. I'm like, yes, we're with you. Let me tell you a squirrel story. And so I do the same thing. I put an image up where I think, oh, I'm just going to tell you a story about this image, about this polar bear that's up here. And so you're just telling people a story rather than thinking, okay, now I need to go through my pitch and so on. So I always encourage people, if they can go that way, Rehearse the first three minutes, get really solid with it. You've got the muscle memory there. So your body thinks, oh, I think I've done this before. I can do this again. And then you get into that flow of telling people stories. And so it doesn't feel like I'm here doing a 20 minute speech. It's like, oh, I've got a two minute story to tell you. Oh, you quite like that one. I've got another two minute story. So it just eases you into that sense of a back and forth connection with the audience. Wow. Okay. Memorize the first three minutes. That's all I have to do. That's less pressure. I was thinking as you were telling me the story about you as a student being scared to ask questions. Mm -hmm. So the way law school works is, well, college, most of the times you're in classes and it's optional. You can ask a question if you want to, but you could go the entire semester without asking the professor a single question. Mm. I come into law school and they do something called the Socratic method. And the professors will just have a list of those students and they'll just call out the random student and be like, so what did you think of this case? And I was always, like, every class I remember dreading if my name would be called. And so when my name was called, 
I would just get so scared and my, everything would drop to my stomach and I would just say, pass. And so my entire class just thought I was not smart. And so at the end of the semester, I was number one in the, in the class. In law school, your grade is based on just one final exam. And I'm very good at written parts. So I was number one in the class and people were just shocked because mm. all they know of me from all the whole semester is just me messing up every single time I talk. Yeah. So, so this, is, this is why I'm so passionate about teaching this, uh, this subject is that imagine, imagine the huge loss to you know, however many followers you've got now, like 20 million followers, if you'd never found your voice, you've got this extraordinary knowledge, this ability to be number one in your class at law school. And the piece that was holding you back though was actually having a voice because once you've, once you've passed the exam, you then need to get out and be representing clients and you know, speaking in meetings and offering things. And until you find that place where you think, I am confident to speak up about my views on this issue, then you, you can't take that knowledge and turn it into service. And so that's why it's so important for everybody to get to that place where they've really truly found their voice. They feel that their voice is worthwhile and it, that they, they're okay also with making mistakes. Uh, because, you know, no question, if you'd answered every single one of those times that uh, a professor had asked you, some of it's going to be wrong. There's no question some of it's going to be wrong. Some of it's going to be right. And what matters more is to, is to be in the game. And so I say this to people when they're thinking about, you know, in their working lives, if they're feeling nervous about saying things, I say, say something early. Just whatever happens, get in the conversation early. If there's a dozen people in the room, make sure that you're one of the earliest voices to speak. Because what happens when you do that is your brain says to you, your survival mechanism says, I spoke and I didn't die. I think I could probably speak again. This is going to be okay. Uh, whereas if you get into that place of thinking, okay, I don't know what's going to happen here. Like if I speak up, how are people going to react? They might react badly. If they react badly, I'm not going to get the, the business. They're going to think I'm a failure. They might actually fire me. I'm going to lose my job. I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. And so you go in this negative spiral, but you can over overcome it by simply saying early in the meeting, hey, can I, can I just check uh, for a moment? Uh, do, would anybody like a cup of coffee? Because I'm just going to grab one for myself. People go, yeah, yeah, I would. Then your brain says, wow, that was good. Positive interaction. Great. You, your voice was heard in the room. Or you can just suggest something early on. So I always say, like, get your voice heard early on. If you could give my audience a piece of advice, what would you say? I think one of the most important things that people can do in general for people in their personal life and in their professional life is to see someone's greatness. And what I mean by that, going all the way back to uh, the story that I was telling you about how my business got started because my hairdresser just happened to be listening to my story about, you know, what I was doing in my life. And I didn't really know where I was going to go at that point. And he saw something in me that I didn't know that I had. He saw this out of work actor who was working in a restaurant at the time who had been to live with Tibetan monks who was studying uh, communication and acting. And he, he put that together and he thought, you could be a communication trainer. He saw something in me I just didn't know I had. And as a result of that, I've had this opportunity to travel around the world and train over 100,000 people and build a team on this. And I actually bumped into him at um, one of London's airports going back a few years ago. And I took a picture of him and me standing underneath one of the boards, the departure boards that shows all the different cities the flights are going to. And I said, I just want you to look up at this board. Uh, because I've been to nearly every single location on that board because you saw my greatness and you believed in me. And now I've trained people in all of those different cities around the world. And so there's so much power in that, that if you can do that for a friend of yours, if you can do that for 
a family member, if you can do that for someone you're working with, see something in them that they don't know that they have. Uh, it, it not only will help them become more of themselves, but the relationship that you'll then have with that person will be profoundly improved. And so, you know, this can improve a relationship and communication at every level. And even, I mean this especially when you're working with people where there's conflict, because if there's conflict or challenge there, then uh, you might think, oh, this person's just out to get me. And why are they always doing these things? But if you see the greatest version of that person in that conversation, you really see the good inside of them and all that they could be, then they'll appreciate you seeing that so much that they're much more likely to have a positive interaction and build a positive relationship with you. So whatever you're doing in communication, see the greatness in the audience, see the greatness in the person that's interviewing you, see the greatness in the potential client of yours and see all of that good in them and, and spell it out if, it, if it's appropriate to do so. And you may be amazed to find out what ends up happening for them as a result of you seeing their greatness. I love that. I think that's an, a beautiful place to end. So we have a little closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Richard Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away being able to say, Richard taught me this? I would love it so much if people could say, Richard taught me how to find my voice. So that people can take all of the value that they have, all the life experience, all the knowledge, all the education, and be able to translate that into getting the results in life and the respect and reactions in life that they really deserve. And so to sort of sum up how people can get to that place, that the key thing to do is to think about mindset, then words, then delivery. So from that mindset, figure out what are your core values? Who are you as a human being? And get that internal validation. So you get this rock solid mindset. You work on your breathing before you go into a key situation. So you are ready to be a rock in the storm, no matter what else is going to be happening. Then the second piece is to think if you want to share something, don't just give information. Share it like a story. Share it engaging the three key areas of the mind that need to be lit up, the survival mind, the emotional mind, and the logical mind. And by so doing, you're going to put that person in a situation where we all love to be in, where if you say to someone, let me tell you a story, they go, oh, brilliant. Finally, someone's going to tell me a story. And so you share that information with them in an engaging flow where they're captivated with you from start to finish. And then you really think about your delivery, going from a place where you stand your ground or you sit your ground, you're sitting or standing in a confident position and you're gesturing in a way that is congruent with your words. And the final piece to add into that, the flow for everything, the target has always got to be, how do I want this person to feel at the end of this meeting, conversation, speech or pitch? What feeling do I want them to have after I leave the room? Because that's essentially your, your brand, if you like, is what people say about you and think about you and feel about you when you've left the room. So think, how do I want people to feel? Then get the mindset, the words, and the delivery to go all the way in that direction. And once you've got that target, you're then set up to be in complete alignment, totally authentic, totally congruent, and a really powerful communicator. And I really hope that people take that away and put it into action and uh, you know, let me know or let you know what value that they've had out of that so that they have truly found their voice and, and got the results they deserve in life. That was incredible. Thank you so much. You're welcome. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.